shit the bed. Well, howdy, folks. It's time for us to do what the good Lord would refer to as a cleansing of the wicked. Gentlemen, let's do what God made us to do. <laughs> Welcome to Now Playing's House of a Thousand Corpses Retrospective Series. Hosted by Marjorie, Arnie, and Brock. That old bitch hog don't know shit. He don't still know Yankee boys. Let me take a guess here. Y'all having a Halloween party tonight? With the upcoming release of Rob Zombie's new horror movie, Halloween 2, opening on August 28th, we are discussing Rob Zombie's earlier horror films, House of a Thousand Corpses, and its sequel, The Devil's Rejects. Well, I bet you'd stick your head in the fire if I told you you could see hell. Beware. These will be spoiler-filled critiques of these two films. Grandpa, watch your language. And like the films, these podcasts are meant for a mature audience and will contain harsh language and content. Enjoy the show, folks! Today we're talking about The Devil's Rejects. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Marjorie, occasional movie watcher. (laughs) And this is Arnie. Do I stutter, bitch? (laughs) Okay, so we are here talking about the second movie Rob Zombie's directed and a sequel to House of a Thousand Corpses. And last time I began the podcast by saying I thought it was a hardcore horror flick and Arnie said it kind of wasn't and explained why. I'm going to say something now and I want to see if you guys agree with me. Although it had some horrific elements in it, it really wasn't a horror movie to me. Do you guys agree with that? Absolutely. It was more of an action movie. Okay, good. Okay, yes. Okay, so we saw the same movie in that sense because I totally was surprised that it was dialed back in in many different ways. But at the same time, you know, it was certainly an entertaining movie to watch. Well, let me just throw down rather than wade through the niceties. It's, <laughs> I'm going to jump into the deep end of the pool. I'm pissed about it because House of a Thousand Corpses is one of my all-time favorite horror movies. And when I hear they're doing a sequel called The Devil's Rejects, I want to see Albino Otis and I want to see Clown Face Spaulding and I want to see Crazy Ass <laughs> Baby. And that's not what I got. And I understand that's not the movie Rob Zombie wanted to make, but what I understand is Rob Zombie had studio is coming to him saying we now want to make a sequel after nobody wanted to release the first one go figure and he didn't want to do horror again he wanted to branch out but because studios were opening their checkbooks he's like yeah i'll make a sequel but it's really not it's, no it's not i agree completely it, it's not even the same characters otis has skin color now mm-hmm. and a full beard a really crazy ass beard yes. he no longer <laughs> looks like the guy who's been stuck and locked in the basement without sunlight for years grandpa is just missing, as is Dr. Satan. Mm -hmm. I mean, Dr. Satan was the big mystery of the last movie. The whole movie's, where's Dr. Satan? Where's Dr. Satan? Who's Dr. Satan? This movie, no Dr. Satan. Now, admittedly, Zombie did film a scene with Dr. Satan and Rosario Dawson, where uh, uh, Dr. Satan is taken to the hospital after the raid on the Firefly house, and Dawson is his nurse, and he rips her throat out, literally. But Zombie says that it doesn't fit in this film, and I agree. Dr. Satan has no place in The Devil's Rejects because it's not a freaking horror movie. No, it's calling it a sequel is completely different and it's not really a sequel. It's the same characters but in a different movie. It would be Hmm. almost as if The Empire Strikes Back had Luke stalked by Freddy Krueger. I mean, it is that much of a change. (laughs) Yeah, I guess you're right. (laughs) That's so intriguing to me, actually. (laughs) 
Now, but if you cut all that off, though, and don't think of it as a sequel to House of a Thousand Corpses, it's a great standalone movie with these freaking nut jobs. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think in the beginning of the movie, they do have the uh, information you need about the first movie into the second movie. Uh, so you can, quote, quote unquote, catch up with these characters. But they also do things throughout the movie that I think, and maybe we'll talk about this later, that you maybe probably didn't even have to do that. You could actually, you can learn what kind of people these are, so, sort of, throughout their actions in this film alone so it almost stands alone on its own and we can go into that later if you want to yeah i mean i guess more than the last one because the last one was just four kids in a house this one Mm -hmm. has a lot more of a plot because the brother of the cop they killed in the last movie is out to hunt them with a vengeance and it's seven months after house of a thousand corpses and the cops raid the mansion or house of the fireflies and everyone dies except for baby and otis and mother firefly gets captured tiny is off off in the woods somewhere, fucking a stump, <laughs> and <laughs> RJ is missing. RJ is killed in yeah. his Iron Man suit of armor. That opening shootout was interesting. When it, when it first started, I was like, hey, someone put a shootout in my horror movie because I didn't know the horror, it wasn't going to be a horror movie, you know, at that point. And I thought the hor- and the shootout was really well filmed. It had the slow-mo, it had the intercuts, it had everything. It was a really fun shootout to watch. Just I didn't expect that at the top of the movie. And it was basically setting the stage because now you've got a movie about three characters on the run and you find out that Baby and Otis are brother and sister and Baby's father is Captain Spaulding, although it's implied Otis is not a brother from another mother or something like that. That is really kind of screwed up the whole Firefly family tree. I still don't get it. Well, it hurts that Mother Firefly was literally a whore. Yes, <laughs> she was. And we also have to mention that Karen Black was not Mother Firefly, and it was played by Leslie Easterbrook, who, do you know who she was? I do. She had yeah. the big rack in the Police Academy films. Yes, yes. I thought her performance was over the top bad. I guess you can't imitate Karen Black. She tried so hard to imitate. You know, like with the recent Star Trek film that we reviewed on Now Playing, you had two types of actors. You had those that tried to kind of pay homage and imitate their predecessor, like Bones. And then you had those like Kirk who took it in a total new direction. And I felt like at times she was just trying to imagine how Karen Black would read the lines. And it just, it, it all went off poorly. And I know it was an argument over money, but it, it just didn't work out for me to have her in that role. She lacked the craziness. But then again, even if it had been Karen Black, Zombie was dialing back the crazy. So who knows what that would have looked like. So you're telling me this was his choice? It wasn't the studio telling him to do that? Oh no, this was completely him. And this was the movie he wanted to make and he had complete control. Hmm. He didn't want to do another horror movie. He wanted to do a 70s road movie. Yeah. Now, if you remember the last podcast, I said that I felt like a lot of the last movie was influenced by natural born killers and Tarantino. And Mm -hmm. I think that's very much the case here too because if you again look at natural born killers the last one was stylistically natural born killers but here you have actual killers on the run from cops much like mickey and mallory and natural born killers and don't tell me that the talk between the pimp and the chicken seller about the rhode island red chicken is not rob zombie's version of royale with cheese you know it's funny you should say that because the vibe i got from that sort of thing was the ice cream tutti frutti <laughs> conversation. <laughs> Tootie fucking fruity. Yeah. Excuse me. 
Tutti fucking fruity. And I love the way he said that line. That that whole scene in the car where they're arguing about it and then, you know, Otis loses the fight. It was a lot of fun. It was in the, in the middle of his movie. And I was like, okay, that was really completely not in the last kind of movie. It was kind of a humor kind of thing from these characters that I didn't expect at that moment. And I really thought it was right out of Pulp Fiction in my mind. I thought Pulp Fiction that scene. Yeah, I just I, I think that Rob Zombie is Quentin Tarantino without the art. <laughs> I do think he has a lot of stylistic choices and really good choices, especially with the variation of shots. The movie opens up with those great aerial shots, too. And, you know, he still keeps in stylized inserts. I I thought, you know, the guy has vision. The the man does. It's it's just amazing. So when I questioned you a second time on if if it's all his choices and stuff. So that that impressed me that I think the the guy's artistic merit. You think he doesn't have the same kind of style as, as Quentin Tarantino or you think he's imitating Quentin Tarantino or do you think? I don't know if he's imitating Quentin Tarantino or just grew up on the same Pope Quentin. And Tarantino did. But the difference is when Rob Zombie puts it in the blender and comes out, it comes out just as less original than when Tarantino does it. And it is an homage redefined for current era of this crap films that they're all making fun of from the 70s. But I think that Rob Zombie's film has more of a 70s feel than Tarantino's ever did. Because I always thought Tarantino's were very wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Look, we're pretending like we're in the 70s or a different era. And then I felt The Devil's Rejects was more 70s authentic, I guess you could say. I would say that Rob Zombie's film feels more like a film that was made in the 70s. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say. Whereas Tarantino's films feel like films made in the 90s about the 70s. I did read something where he tried to only use special effects that were available in the 70s to give it the 70s authentic feel. But he had to abandon that because, ironically, it costs too much. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a strange movie though because really if I was trying to sum up the plot there's a whole lot of this movie that has nothing to do with the plot and I dare say okay I'm sorry but do you know what the plot would be if you try to describe it to someone we'll see these people they're on the run and then they run into the girl from three's company and they kill her after humiliating her and stripping her naked and making her kiss a girl and then they run into little tommy pickles but tommy pickles is a whore and gets shot and then they have some ice cream and then they get killed actually they had the ice cream on the way to see tommy pickles okay whatever but you see my point And at the same time, there's a cop on their trail trying to get his revenge upon them. It was the cop from Deuce Bigelow with the stuff on his winky. <laughs> you want to talk about over the top. Uh, William Forsythe, you know, he had that one note and he kept on hitting it and hitting it and hitting it the entire time. I mean, I, I thought it was okay. I didn't mind it all that much, but, but I got kind of tired of the voice, uh, of his voice. But, you know, he had that part and he just played it full tilt, you know? But I think that's what he does in every movie. Yeah. <laughs> Very well maybe be true. Because that was the same character he played in Deuce Bigelow. Trust me, I've seen Deuce Bigelow more times than anybody should. I'm like <laughs> Rob Schneider's only fan. And that is the same character he played in Deuce Bigelow. Same voice, same everything. They're both cops. Yeah. He played a cop in uh, 88 Minutes, that Pacino movie, and he did a lot of the similar stuff. Well, he didn't talk as much, so he didn't, and he didn't have a twang, I don't think. But yeah, same kind of stuff. Same Doesn't kind he of play st- cop in everything, I think? I think he does. <laughs> Although he played Flat Top in uh, Dick Tracy. I've never seen that. What's funny it. is I was reading the Wikipedia plot description here. And what it said was William Forsythe started off as a very legitimate cop in this movie. And then after Mother Firefly reveals that she killed his brother, he then starts a descent into madness and revenge where he's going to kill the Fireflies. But I watched this movie actually three times for this podcast. Once with normal audio, once with the most useless director's commentary ever to be released. (laughs) 
Batista <laughs> once with the even more useless cast commentary. And I have to say, he starts off this movie out for their blood. There's no evolution of his character. You know, the transition I saw in his character was he saw his dead ghost brother, which I'm so tired of seeing those things in movies when I talk to the dead. And then that changes my outlook on things. He goes back and kills Mother Flyerfly after talking to the ghost of his brother, I believe. And then he gets them and captures them and, and, and puts them in the house. I, I agree with you that he was in the same track throughout the whole movie. I think the movie was trying to tell us that after he talked to his dead brother was the switch. But I agree with you. I think his, his choices were so similar before and after that that it didn't make much of a difference. Before he saw his dead brother, he's telling Mother Firefly that they're already dead and they just don't know it yet. Yeah. So, right. yeah, it's like, I mean, maybe before it was bravado and after it was real and he wasn't a nuanced enough actor to show the difference or there wasn't that scene of him and the other cop outside the interrogation room going, I'm going to go in there and scare the bitch. But, you know, right. it, it lacked something because really, you know, Brock, you had some problems with this previous movie. My problem with this movie is this is a movie where not a single character is likable. You can't really root for the Fireflies because they rape and murder a group of band of five people. Banjo band. and Sullivan. And yeah. I'm sorry, but they killed Brian Posehn. And I think that is inexcusable. I know. That's like shooting the dog. <laughs> I know. They and they shot him, him like up? a dog. I they know. shot him just like a dog right in his head. Couldn't they have tied him up on the back of the hotel room door and with he, a mask of his girlfriend? He's so pathetic the way his last words are, Roy, help me. I know. I love Brian Posehn. And so you've got, you can't really root for the fireflies in this. And you're certainly not rooting for the homicidal cop who's crazily torturing the fireflies. This is a movie of unlikable people, and which makes me wonder why I enjoy it so damn much. That says something about <laughs> me, perhaps. I like to watch bad people do bad things. Well, you do have a history of liking bad movies, but this is not a bad movie. It's a very good so movie. So we mentioned uh, Brian Posehn. So that, that whole scene in the hotel room, when they capture the Banjo and Sullivan. Here's what's going through my mind when they have Priscilla Barnes from Three's Company in her underwear, and he has the gun down her panties, and he's taunting her husband and friends on the bed. And so I'm thinking as I'm watching this, so far I'm watching this movie, I'm like, okay, this is okay, okay, here we go. And then he puts the gun down her panties. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, he's going to shoot her in the hoo-ha. He's going to blow it, and, and <laughs> I don't blood's going to spray all over everybody, and, and it's just going to be, I'm saying, okay, he's going to go too far again here. He's going to go too far. And he didn't do it. He didn't He didn't shoot her. Of course, he humiliated her, as Marjorie said, and that was sort of torture for everyone in that room. And But that was effective to get you to not like Otis, to show you what kind of person Otis was, to show you what kind of person Baby was, to show you the kind of people we're dealing with and the kind of victims these people are going to be. But then it, it, they turn it on her head again because these victims all fight back. So this one scene in the hotel room, I thought, was quite effective in the use of the torture, even though it wasn't as hard core torture was before it certainly was torture because it really helped the characters the victims you know get some gumption and of course help the audience learn these people remember i said before that you didn't see the first film and they showed you flashbacks in the beginning of it or like little tidbits about when they go in the house and talk about how many bodies they found in the house and they actually show you some things in the house when the cops are investigating it here you get a chance to see it firsthand you can be told of things a thousand times but when you see the characters behave in a certain way then you really get it so if you didn't see the first movie this could have really helped you figure that out. Of course, since I have the background on these characters, I already knew what kind of people they were. But again, they're not the same people. They're kind of watered down. But my point is that I found that entire scene effective to help the movie 
get a springboard for the next section of the movie. I have to disagree because I actually think this movie was harder to watch than the last one because the torture scene is so much more real. Mm. In the last movie, it was over the top. It was your standard horror stuff. A guy's walking down the stairs wearing a mask he just tore off somebody else's face. He's wearing a skin mask. That doesn't happen. That isn't possible. You you don't have these things. But a crazy guy breaking into a hotel room and raping a woman or forcing him to perform oral sex on him, that happens. And that was hard for me to watch. And just the sheer depravity and the realism, I found that whole scene, while it was the only time I felt these characters were even remotely like they were in the previous movie, I found that whole scene really hard to watch at times. The way that he just walks into the shower, rips the naked woman out and throws her on the bed not letting her get any clothes just sitting there naked now and shoots yep. Brian Posehn like a dog I found that all so much more realistic and thus so much more disturbing it certainly was but he could have gone much farther with it and he didn't and I'm very happy now did she actually perform the oral sex I thought he stopped her before she actually did it it's hard to tell because there is a shot where she's on her knees and her head's in his crotch was he zipped was he unzipped I guess that's for the viewer to decide okay because I thought she didn't I thought he stopped her okay but it's very ambiguous yes yes for the movie i think it this torture scene as arnie's correct it was disturbing but it wasn't gross it wasn't it wasn't over the top i thought it was quite effective as i said for the springboard of this movie to let you know who you're dealing with who these people are and give the people who are the victims what they needed to to really fight back and i i thought it was it was a scene that this movie needed so you don't understand what kind of people you're really dealing with because as you said these aren't you know well yeah i mean when watching this movie this time i asked myself why is this hotel scene in there because it's 30 or 40 minutes it's not a small portion of the movie the movie comes to a grinding halt they stop running from the cops and spend some time torturing people and waiting around for captain spaulding to show up well they did have to kill some time for captain spaulding because he was with his lovely attractive hooker (laughs) (laughs) but the thing is i'm wondering why does this have to be there and yes i agree with what you're saying brock is that it's there to show us how bad of people these people are if you haven't seen the previous movie and you don't know that how depraved they can be you needed to see that Mm -hmm. by the same token it almost goes too far because it doesn't impact the story at all the main story is these characters on the run from the cops and then they go to see Captain Spaulding's half-brother, the pimp. And then when at the whorehouse, the cop comes and gets them. I mean, that is the arc. And it takes a massive detour. It goes to Dagobah in that hotel room. <laughs> I completely agree with you that the movie stops completely and it's like a different, it's like a tangent. You're absolutely right. Um, They have the two guys going to get the weapons. That's a whole separate tangent. And they have the two girls in the hotel room with baby and those people were going to die. And so what they did was they, you know, took an opportunity to basically try to fight back and they all died sooner than they would have anyway. But it was nice to see them fight back. I especially liked the knife going into Priscilla Barnes, that kill. That effect was great. I don't know how the hell they did that. CGI. Well, it looked great to me. I couldn't even tell it was CGI. I thought it was great. Um, I thought it was uh, cool throwing the knife into her. And yeah, I felt bad for her. I did. But it was just a really cool effect. And the same with the killings in the field with Otis and the two men. I thought that scene was very well done. Poor guys. And it's just that poor guy on the the ground with his leg. But I thought both scenes were very 
already done. I don't know. The women were at least sympathetic characters. They got the worst of the deals. But yes. these guys were not very sympathetic. One was puking everywhere. Yeah, and then one got into this trouble anyway because he thought he had a chance with Baby. <laughs> You're my wife. I would get into the yeah, same okay. trouble. Okay, I do her too, <laughs> so it's all right. <laughs> Oh, I stunned you guys silent. <laughs> well, no, it was a funny line. <laughs> no, I mean, he got into the trouble. It, it's kind of a morality play. He, payback. He was going to go to her hotel room and, well, they ended up killing Brian Posehn. So, you know, that's what you get. The one really gruesome kill in this, of course, is the other girl who, you know, runs out of the hotel room and gets hit by the by the bus. <laughs> I love that scene. That is the best scene in the whole movie. That was just so awesome. I got to tell you, that scene was just amazing and it was grotesque to the point where it was, I thought that was so over the top. It was great. I loved it. I loved the entrails and the, and everything. It was just really. As she was all over the road. We laughed out Me too. loud yeah. in the theater because that was like a wily e. coyote moment. With <laughs> Absolutely. Blood. Absolutely. I mean, I actually was thinking that. I always think that ever since like the movie Final Destination now yeah. is anytime somebody's running into a street, I'm like, is there going to be a car? But I never expected a Mack truck. <laughs> Yeah. We live in the Midwest. We see this happen to deer all the time. That was pretty close. Now, there's one scene around that time that just, I wish this had been on the cutting room floor. You can guess what scene it is because this is Rob Zombie basically breaking his arm, patting himself on the back. This scene is only there, in my opinion, for Rob Zombie's ego. And that's the scene with the movie critic. For some reason, they realize that all of the aliases that the Fireflies use are taken from old Groucho Marx films which is actually true. Rob Zombie mined Groucho Marx films to come up with these aliases for the first movie. He now makes that a plot point for the second movie, and the cops call in a movie critic who is a <laughs> Groucho Marx expert. Well, that's what you do, of course. <laughs> and this guy is a blathering buffoon, very reminiscent of Gene Shalit. <laughs> <laughs> And he's like, I am a self-proclaimed Marx Brothers expert, if I do say so myself. And just going on and on. And it's just like, Rob, yeah, I'm sorry the critics didn't like your slasher film. Big shocker there. So you're lampooning all critics. That's mighty big of you. It just, it didn't fit in the film. The critic revealed no information. It lasted for about five minutes. And then the critic insults Elvis, which pisses off the sheriff and kicks him out. It was just a scene there that seemed... I mean, honestly, the first rule of editing, and I've had to do this even with podcasts, is you kill your darlings. Rob wanted that scene for his ego, and he cut the Dr. Satan scene and so many other scenes, and he keeps that shit in. It had all the subtlety of a big old brick to the head about why it was there. I completely agree with you. Seriously, that scene just did not belong. <laughs> it was so awful, and the actor who played the critic, I mean, I'm sure he was following his direction of be big and over the top and crazy and stupid but it oh god that scene was more painful for me to watch every time i watch this movie than the torture so then we get to the cop hires bounty hunters to catch the fireflies and we get one of my favorite actors showing oh, yeah. up in this movie danny trejo he's that guy for me when he shows up i'm like yes danny trejo just keeps has not only is like nine lives this guy's in everything i saw him in desperate housewives one time and i was flipping channels the guy's on everything the guy is great in everything he does I, he has a great look i just love the guy i'm so, when he's up i was just happy 
You know, I guess all those years in prison <laughs> gives you that look. Because <laughs> those tattoos are real. Yeah, he was really yeah. in prison. And wasn't it Robert Rodriguez that gave him his start? I think it was Robert Rodriguez who gave him the beginning. And I found it interesting that the cop goes to the bounty hunters. But what I found more interesting is the bounty hunters live. They go in, they do their job and walk away. You never see that in a movie. I agree. I really expected the Fireflies to really mess up these bounty hunters. And no, the bounty hunters go in there, they kill all the whores and capture the Fireflies. <laughs> and it was just like, wow, did not see that coming. Otis was outmatched for the first time, I think, that we ever seen, right? And he got, yeah. wasn't he thrown out the door or something or thrown out the window? I don't thrown out the window. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, I did not expect that. And that's when the worm really turns on this movie, because now you see the fireflies get tortured. They're taken back to their house and the cop is staple gunning photos. That's the part that made me uncomfortable. And I don't know why that made me uncomfortable. But when he was stapling things to them, I really got squeamish. You see, I just kept thinking, oh, those are probably not industrial staples. It couldn't (laughs) be going through the seventh layer of the epidermis. But I don't know why that made me squirm. I mean, nothing usually does that to me. And I'm able to separate reality and fiction. And But when he was stapling, oh, I just didn't like that. And when he drove the nails through his hands, yeah, I did yeah. not like that. But I almost wonder if that was an over-the-top reference to Otis as being crucified. You don't play a Jesus allegory with Otis. You just don't do that. I took it to be that. Is it wrong that I really like Otis? I think he was a good character. You know what I love about Otis is in that scene where the cop is showing the picture of the cheerleader and he shows her alive and he goes, she's really attractive. Then he shows her dead and he goes, wouldn't want to fuck her now. And Otis goes, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that line just always gets a laugh out of me. I'm just like, you vulgar son of a bitch. You are there tied to a chair with staples in you. And you're like, oh, I'd fuck her. Of course, he has the best line of the whole movie. I keep my standards low, so I'm never disappointed. (laughs) The one quote that stuck out to me, which I actually wrote down because I thought was funny, was next words out of your mouth better be some Mark Twain shit because it's going to be chiseled on your tombstone. I thought that was a funny line, so much so that I wrote it down. It's a good line. It is a it is a nice line. Otis gets all the good lines. That's because he has the best intonation and voice. Yeah, I love this guy's voice. Because when Otis speaks, you're going to fucking listen. And if he says it's going to be chiseled on your tombstone, that's not a metaphor. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> not at all. He's one of the most literal SOBs I've ever seen. <laughs> so did you guys think that the brothel scene in the whole Miller movie was just really surreal and crazy, almost like an acid trip dropped in the middle of the movie? With all the partying yeah, and all the dancing. And the weird and... lights. And it just seemed like it was just something just out of nowhere. It was weird that a brothel was in a Western town. <laughs> yeah, that see, that's what I'm talking about. It's just... <laughs> Not quite right, is it? And the E.G. Daily Hooker talking about the Star Wars sex. That was rather intriguing. I that did... was, yes. And you have a thing for E.G. Daily the way you're used to. I did, actually. when In the 80s, when she was in Better Off Dead as the singer at the New Year's party, I thought uh, she was She really was Pee Wee's girlfriend. Yeah, she was hot in that, too. I liked E.G. Daily before she got older and smoked too much. And skankier. I could not figure out who that was. Thank you. Didn't look it up. She is the voice of Tommy Pickles on Rugrats. Oh, that's what Tommy... Because I knew Tommy Pickles was a Rugrat reference, and I'm like, oh, maybe I missed something. I didn't know the actor who played Tommy Pickles was in this movie, and so I, I didn't say anything earlier. It's it's the girl. I didn't I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, ah. So now it's even more surreal. A little bit. 
<laughs> yeah, you, you, if you imagine like somebody taking a Tommy Pickles animation and go, you know, all those nerds want to fuck Princess Leia, right? <laughs> <laughs> Now, Spaulding has his brother named Lando. I mean, Charlie. Yes, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Did anybody else think Charlie gave up the Devil's Rejects a little too quickly? The cop comes and says, Charlie, you're going to have them all there at midnight and we're going to come and get them. And Charlie's just like, okay. Wasn't that the scene with Learn How to Fuck a Chicken? It was. It was the scene with Learn How to Fuck a Chicken. I I don't condone no chicken fucking. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, okay then. (laughs) But he's the Lando of this movie because he betrays them all and then comes back at the end and tries to save them all. Yeah, I thought Lando too. (laughs) (laughs) But we've mentioned Star Wars like five times and maybe they put it in my head with the whole Princess Leia thing earlier in the movie. But uh, yeah, absolutely. The one death at the end of the movie that didn't make any sense to me was Tiny. Now, Tiny is perfectly used in this movie because, first of all, Tiny doesn't really fit. And you see him just at the beginning in the opening credits. He's dragging this naked woman through the woods, dead woman. And then (laughs) when the cop has chased Baby down in a mirror image of the Run Rabbit Run from the first movie, Tiny comes in and saves Baby, kills the cop, and then saves Otis and Spaulding from the burning house. But then Otis, Spaulding, and Baby drive off and they're like, we'll come back for you. And Tiny's like, okay. And then walks into a burning house, which explodes. It was a very tender moment. (laughs) It's like, I understand, again, this is what I call sloppy writing. It's like, Zombie has it in his mind that every member of the Firefly clan will be dead by the end of this movie and couldn't come up with a way to kill Tiny. Because Tiny can't join them during the free bird end of the movie. Because this whole movie's been about those three. Tiny there would make it awkward. So how else would you kill Tiny then? Why not let Tiny live? Why did Tiny have to die? That's kind of sloppy to just be like, the tidy bow must be put there. They weren't looking for Tiny. Tiny wasn't in any of the mug shots they had. Tiny could have just gone off and been with his tree. One of the other ways this movie's vastly different from the predecessor, and this is again in my mind a negative, is Rob Zombie, in making this a period piece in the 70s, populated it with all 70s music. And Gone was what I thought was one of the strongest things from House of a Thousand Corpses, which is his wonderful musical score and that driving bass that helps make that film feel so intense is during all the scenes that subwoofer is rumbling ominously. And in this movie, you've got Freebird and you've got all kinds of 70s staples, the original Rock On, not the Michael Damien Rock On. And I went out and I bought the Devil's Reject soundtrack sight unseen, just expecting it to be more of the same from the last one. And there's not a single Rob Zombie track on the thing. As we said in the last podcast, Rob Zombie's Brick House and House of a Thousand Corpses and Red Hot Pussy Licker. I mean, these are all great songs. And I was disappointed that he didn't feature his own music a little more because I I like it and I think it works well as an accompaniment to a film. And I don't think you have to limit yourself to a film's musicals. If If a film is set in a period, I don't think you have to limit it to that period's musical style. He didn't last time and it worked for me. He also used very common 70s songs. You know, I hadn't heard a lot of those songs in Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction before, even though they might have been famous back in the day when they came out. Those were 
were ones that I hadn't gotten to yet in my musical education, and I was able to rediscover some songs that are, are great. Here, I knew these songs already, and I thought they were interesting choices for him, especially, as you said. But I didn't mind the fact that he kept it in the 70s, but I hear your point. Yeah, and some of it really works. Mm-hmm. I, I think the opening credits to Midnight Rider works well because it, that that song sets the whole theme of the movie. You know, it's all about they're not going to catch the Midnight Rider. You know, it, it works in this movie. It was just something that let me down because I, I wanted more of the zombie music. And it just instead it was a bunch of 70s stuff and you know what admittedly it did add a few things to my music collection that was missing such as the original elvin bishop fooled around and fell in love or the david essex rock on but you know for the most part it just seemed like one step away from freedom rock (laughs) well if you're going to use classic 70s tunes that we've all heard a thousand times it's better to use it this way in this movie than if you have you've ever seen sahara with matthew mcconaughey in the middle of movie for absolutely no reason they break into sweet home alabama in the middle of a desert oh yeah that makes sense well not to me it didn't in the middle it was like they wanted to it was like they're trying to elicit a response from the audience and they did that exact same thing in con air with sweet home alabama there you go it's just like everyone loves the song. Hey man, Sweet Home Alabama. I'm like, why? Why? I actually don't like Sweet Home Alabama. I'm not I'm, a fan. I'm not a fan anymore. I just, I, I'm so tired of that song. <laughs> it's a good song. I, I admit it's a good song. I'm just so tired of hearing it. Now, yeah. what about the ending? I knew as soon as they started the strains of Freebird. Yeah. That it was the end for them. What I find intriguing is they Freebird's a long song. Is, yeah, <laughs> and they played the whole thing. Yeah, and they played the whole thing. I'm like, okay. And they, they had the slow mo, and they had the gunfight again, and they had the flashbacks, which strangely featured none of the Firefly family except the three who were left in the car. <laughs> no Tiny, no RJ, no Grandpa, no Mama Firefly. Just the three of them at a picnic. <laughs> it seemed very convenient to me. <laughs> It was it was certainly a long drawn out scene, and uh, it just it just went on. Of course, I love Freebird. You know, who doesn't love Freebird? But it, it certainly I was questioning why the whole thing. But you know, he took his time with it, and he played with the camera, and we got to see some squibs, which is always nice. And um, yeah, it just took its time, and the ending came and came and came and came. It was rather long drawn out for something which you knew was happening, but I guess that's what made it different. I don't know. I just, I never cared for the ending because they die, I guess. Yeah, I'm going to share with the listeners an observation that perhaps not a lot of people know, but I got one of the few pieces of information I got out of the commentary. You know, throughout the whole movie, there's this power struggle between Otis and Captain Spaulding about who's really in charge. You know, who's making the plans, who's deciding if they go get the tootie fucking fruity. <laughs> and apparently this was actually a power struggle also going on between the two actors in the scenes each trying to figure out who's the star of the movie and it was the actor's decision bill mosley decided during that scene that he was going to pick up the gun the big gun and give it to captain spaulding as a sign of otis saying to captain spaulding here's the big gun you be in charge i'm gonna give up the power struggle as we go off into it oh but wasn't captain spaulding really injured Yes, they all were. Yeah. But so. Spalding, I think the one thing that always bothered me is Spalding appears to be shot in the stomach at the whorehouse, but then he seems okay-ish back at the Firefly house when, until he's stapled, and then, yeah, he gets pretty messed up. Yeah. 
But the other thing is Captain Spaulding fired the big gun, which caused Sherry Moon zombie to lose the hearing in one ear and break an eardrum because the big gun should not have been fired so close to her head. Oh, you mean in real life? Yeah, in real life. Oh, did it recover or is is it gone? Yeah, she recovered. Oh, okay. But yeah, because Bill Mosley decided to ad lib Otis giving Spaulding the, the big gun that happened. Got now, we saw this is the strangest story ever, and I apologize for the tangent, but it's about <laughs> the ending of this movie. We were at San Diego Comic Con waiting for a taxi, and who's in line ahead of us but Sid Haig? And he's creepy. And so he is one person in front of us, and he's there with his handler, and they're talking, and I know who he is, and I'd seen him at some horror cons and gotten his autograph, but I decided I'm going to let let the man be. I have nothing to say to Sid Haig. You know, I've already told him once good job on House of a Thousand Corpses. I didn't need to interrupt his taxi waiting. And so he's talking to his handler and he's like, God damn it. All these people keep asking me at this con, when's the sequel? Didn't they fucking see the movie? We're all fucking dead. There's not going to be a sequel. <laughs> And this is what I'm hearing him say at the taxi stand. And then we decided to go down to the other taxi. I steal his taxi. Yeah, Arnie stole his taxi. You should be ashamed of yourself. I know. Not really, because it was a long wait for a taxi. (laughs) It was a long wait. We were. He wasn't first in line. But yeah, that is actually a true story of Sid Haig complaining about people asking if there would be another sequel. I guess people like the characters enough that maybe, you know, there's obviously there's space for another sequel. You can go before. Yeah, a prequel. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's plenty of room there for that. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of backstory there. And initially, the story we see here is not the story that Rob Zombie had originally planned. If you are as into A House of a Thousand Corpses as I am, initially there was backstory that said Otis was not really a Firefly, but a crazy guy who came and kind of galvanized the Firefly family, but he was not a blood relation. And it was that Tiny and Baby were both Earl's kid, and here Baby is Spaulding's kid. So there's a lot of changes to the mythology of this movie and baby being his daughter i didn't really think mattered in this movie unless i missed something that big why was that even mentioned I think just to show her allegiance and why he was along for the ride. And I think it was also to make Spaulding part of the family because mm-hmm. they were the Firefly family or the Devil's Rejects as the media started calling them in the movie. And I really think they just happened to be the three most popular characters out of the first one. Because were they even the three most popular or just the three who, who live? Rob Zombie has on speed dial because they were in every extra feature on House of a Thousand Corpses too. <laughs> that could be. Um, I was really surprised when they stop the car to call Spaulding, actually, in the beginning of the movie. So maybe the connection with the family was give her the reason to do it. Otherwise, why would she do it? Even though they're friends, you know, yeah. family, family's family, friends are friends in that situation, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I, I can't begin to even think about it. I'm just guessing here. But I don't know. Spaulding, I think, really lacked in this movie. He had one clown scene. He was such a great over-the-top character last time. He just, this movie, he just kind of seemed great gross <laughs> uh yeah that oh yeah he was gross at the house and everything and his opening scene yeah you know, the, the whole thing it really gave him that impression really gave the audience the impression that he was just uh a grody. dirty disgusting old person yep <laughs> yep in the cast commentary when he's getting out of bed one of i think it's sherry moon talks about his tidy whities and sid hey goes those aren't tidy whities those are tidy brownies oh. <laughs> <Ew>. <laughs> i know that was sick oh 
And on that note. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, Arnie, Marjorie, do you recommend The Devil's Rejects? Arnie. I do, but it's just not the movie I want it to be. I am upset because this movie's existence means that a true house of a thousand corpses, a house of two thousand corpses, will never exist. So in that way, it kind of upsets me because I love House of a Thousand Corpses so much more than this movie. It's just House of a Thousand Corpses is one of the perfect horror experiences in my life. And I just want to relive it again and again. And I want sequel after sequel that lives up to it this movie means i can't have that that said you know i have to take away my prejudice that this isn't what i want and this is a good movie if i'd never seen house of a thousand corpses i would like this movie even better than i do i think because i wouldn't have those let down expectations of what i wanted it to be so i do recommend this movie but yeah i think it is far more pulp fiction than it is ever house of a thousand corpses and you know it's almost a disservice to this movie movie that it's associated with a horror movie because people who like crime films aren't going to watch this because it's going to be so associated with House of a Thousand Corpses. I think strategically it was a misuse of these characters. You could have had different serial killers and had just as good a movie, but this is a good movie. I agree pretty much with Arnie said. I think as a standalone movie, it's a good movie. And I think once you lump it in as a sequel to House of a Thousand Corpses is where you start to have the continuity problems, which, yes, you should throw out the window when you're talking about a horror movie because Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street really just pissed all over the continuity train there. So I really love the characters. I know that's probably awful and people are probably like, oh, my God, what's wrong with this girl? But I love the Fireflies. I think they're just nuts. And I think that's a wonderful attribute for a character because you don't know what the hell they're going to do. And I think it speaks a lot about Rob Zombie's writing and directing and producing because you can't go into a Rob Zombie movie expecting anything because whatever you expect is totally what's not going to happen. And I think that, I know you guys thought some of this movie was disturbing. I kind of didn't have a problem with it until I got the stapler. So perhaps I have something wrong with me. But I think it's a good movie. If I could interject something, one of the things I think Zombie does so well here is mess with your head in that he makes you like the fireflies after you've seen what they've done. You get to see them partying and see them eating ice cream and see them as a family and you relate it to your own family and their little squabbles in the car over ice cream. And because he's able to make the audience on the side of the depraved killers, it's a wonderful experiment and I think he pulls it off well. That said, I'm not always a fan of directors who are intentionally trying to manipulate the audience like that and trying to make them experience a certain thing. I'm all for a director who challenges an audience, but not for manipulation. And that's what he does here is he makes you like these characters because they get all the funny lines and their interplay. And that's what you're experiencing is you like these characters. How can you not like these characters? They get great lines and things. But I'm also a big Rob Zombie fan. And I think that plays into it too. Now, I don't think that everything he does is great because towards the end some of his music kind of got went off the deep end a little wasn't as great as his other stuff but I just think that music was maybe just the beginning of what we got from Rob Zombie and I think filmmaking is where he needs to go and he, I don't think he makes music anymore yeah he did Educated Horses and there's another album coming out he seems to go movie album movie album now 
And I, I too recommend this movie. I had a much better time with this one. There's a lot more things in this movie that I tend to like in movies. And I agree with a lot of what you both said. Um, it's just not the same movie. And going into this one, you know, it I had an expectation. And what I got was something completely different. And I, I liked what I got. I really did. Um, and so it's... Look, Rob, second movie in a row, Rob Zombie has impressed the heck out of me. And it's really nice that there's a director out there who has vision, who has an idea of what he's doing. It's not bland shots. It's not It's not bland. It's just somebody out there who cares. And it's really great. Now, whether or not I agree with all his choices, well, that's my problem probably more than his. But uh, it's, it's great that a guy like Rob Zombie is out there. And I, I'm looking forward again to his Halloween because I want to see what he does with that and see what his vision is because the guy has it. So um, – I do recommend it. So check it out. And you don't have to see, and I honestly will tell people now, you don't have to see the first one to see this one, as we've talked about a million times. And so it's a good movie. Check it out. So if you enjoyed today's podcast, please go to our website, www.nowplayingpodcast.com and download our other movies, retrospective series. And you can leave us an email at show at nowplayingpodcast.com. You can discuss this movie and our other movies in our forums. And you can find a link to our forums on our homepage. And if you like this episode and our other episodes, please leave a review for us on iTunes so other fans like yourself can find us on iTunes. Well, Marjorie and Arnie, it's been fun. Thanks a lot for the conversation. Thank you. And we will be back starting next week to begin the Halloween series. One more week till Halloween, Halloween, <laughs> Halloween. One more week till Halloween. Now playing podcast. It is now official. You have just wasted most of my fucking day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Now Playing's House of a Thousand Corpses retrospective series. Thanks, baby. I had a really good time. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can listen to our other installments, as well as our Friday the 13th and Star Trek retrospective series at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Are you done trying to scare me? Now Playing is a Venganza Media production and is not affiliated with Lionsgate Entertainment or Maple Pictures. House of a Thousand Corpses, The Devil's Rejects, and all characters and situations are the property of those companies and no infringement is intended. Don't we make you laugh? Aren't we fucking funny? Leslie Easterbrook, who, do you know who she was? I do. She had the big rack in the Police Academy films. Yes, she was also in the Laverne and Shirley TV show when they moved to California. Oh, I didn't know that. She was their neighbor. I didn't know they moved to California. I guess I missed that. Yeah, oh, it was terrible. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, it is horrible. But I did find something that said that Otis is actually Baby's brother, father unknown. That was basically stated in Devil's Rejects, but before. if you listen yeah, to confusing. the lyrics of Red Hot Pussy Liquor. <laughs> you just want to get that out there because that's an awesome song. It tells the whole family tree. And Otis and he is... also is an albino. <laughs> yes, he was an albino in the first one. Yes. He had quite the skin tone in the second. <laughs> Been tanning that albino. He was creepier as an albino. I'm sorry. He was creepier as the bald, freaky-haired albino.